This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. It was billed as the budget for women, but was it? The hard hats used in the photo opportunities for last year's budget were nowhere to be seen, as the government changed its fiscal strategy from a construction-led recovery to a billion-dollar emphasis on women and the aged care sector. Join me and experts from the Gender Equality Research Network as we drill down into the detail of this government spending spree and whether the benefits of this change in focus really do flow on to support the economic participation of Australian women. Hello, I'm Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer. I'm the Director of the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University. Hi there, I'm Dr. Elise Stevenson. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow of the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University. Hi, I'm Fabrizio Carmignani. I'm a professor of economics in the Griffith Business School. Hi, I'm Associate Professor Pavin de Clare and I'm a, an economist at the Griffith Business School. Thank you all for joining us on Gender Card Special Budget Edition. We start with you, Susan Harris-Rimmer. The last budget was really criticised roundly, wasn't it, for marginalising women? Is that not the case this time? Well, it's better than the last budget, but just calling something a women's budget doesn't make it so. And I think there is a gap between what women were expecting and what they got in this budget. So $3.4 billion identified measures out of a $95 billion new spending does not equal a women's budget. I think they still haven't quite got that math correct, but it's definitely better and it's more transparent as well. So I think that what women were expecting was from the march and from all the political advocacy that has happened this year and a lot of rage directed at the at the um, at the government i think they did expect at least this and it's been interesting to see the coverage saying you know women are winners out of this budget and that's what we need to interrogate are women really winners out of this budget but at least we've got something to interrogate because we have a transparent document that tells us what we think but the optics of the budget were not what i was expecting it's interesting isn't it? because i think four out of the five budget statements had women uh in there somewhere so the the, the government really seems to have at least taken on that the uh, the presentation needed to be a bit less hard hat oriented and a bit more women oriented but no female pollies out front at all chose that day to reintroduce christian porter to the house gave andrew lambing a committee of education role so in terms of a day in parliament it wasn't what i think most women would be expecting so you know uh, the twitter sphere was still primarily rage driven um, from the female commentators but you know as i said there are some measures inside the package that are we think have some decent gender analysis behind them and might be beneficial for women but the whole of the budget needs better gender analysis and more specific focus on you know what outcomes what evidence base this spending is having and what you get still is an investment in physical infrastructure over social infrastructure that's as the bottom line because the budget papers trumpeted, I think it's more than $3 billion specifically targeted for women. But I think half of that, well, just about a bit more, $1.7 billion was for the childcare sector. So that breakdown already is interesting in itself, isn't it? Yeah, and there's lots in there. There's lots of pilots. There's lots of small 
things that we would say are catch-ups on things that they should have done over the last eight years of government. So, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag, and we'll talk to you more about specific measures. Pavinda's going to take us through childcare. Lisa's going to take us through what's in there for young women. Fabrizio and I are going to give us a bit more of an overview. But I will say, in terms of some of the big-picture investments around um, aged care and NTIS in particular, they're some of the really big budget items, the, you know, $30 billion, $13 billion. There are some good gender implications from those packages. What would be some of those aspects so that that is actually beneficial for women, you think? Yeah, well, the aged care sector is primarily an employer of women and also um, the majority of people in aged care are women because they, at the moment, live longer than men, generally speaking. So any reforms to the aged care industries is going to be beneficial uh, in terms of gender. So the professionalisation, but, you know, again, look what it took, that intensely depressing Royal Commission report so it has to have a suite of policy and legal reforms that go along with that spend. But it's it's a good it's a good investment in our social infrastructure and the NDIS is the same. A lot of very difficult discussions about how the NDIS should be, you know, more sustainable. But in fact that is an investment in the social participation of a very large group of Australians. So we, again we've got to think of these things. They're investments in a productive uh, Australia where people have the right to participate in public life and the, the, the economics all stack up to say if you make these big social investments, they pay off for the economy over time. So, um, you know, I, I think those two are probably the most, um, in my view, the most beneficial for women. Might be good, I think, to, to go to Pavinda and to talk a bit more about childcare because that certainly seems to be the main aspect that has been promoted as being great for women. But I suppose that's actually interesting in itself that it's being painted that way, isn't it, Pavinda? Uh, yes, certainly. It is, it is quite nuanced in the sense that it is better than nothing and it is on balance better for women to have this policy than not at all but the totality of the package is missing right by that i mean is it, it is a policy that is going to boost demand right? so it's going to increase the demand for for childcare spots but the supply issues are, are left unaddressed right we already have an issue with there being a shortfall of uh, childcare places in certain areas, right? So these are also regional issues, right? In, in, in the major cities, we already have quite a number of childcare centres, but in the regional areas, there, there, there is the shortfall of spots. And then we have the issue of, of the staff, uh, training staff, that has not been addressed. Having said that, the government has indirectly addressed that because they are, they are providing discounts and, and free short courses, and some of that will be taken up by people who want to study childcare. But... Retaining staff is another issue because there, there's a high uh, amount of people who come in and out, and that's got to do with the uh, with the pay, with the rates of pay, <laughs> with, with, the, with the rates of pay, and, mm. and and the nature of the job. It is very hard work, right? Mm. It's, it's not babysitting; it's, it's a bit more than that. But you're you're paid babysitting rates essentially, right? And also, it doesn't affect that many working parents because they project it will it will help a quarter of working parents, and if we think that for those with one child, if you if you reduce the cost of childcare, will that help the female partner in the relationship work more hours? Because it's one thing to say we're going to get more women into work, but can we get those women who are currently in work to do more work, more hours? So it might actually be be a little bit better if, if they were to target the bottom line in the sense that they would say nobody pays more than $40 a day, for example, and work backwards from there. Because the problem is when you have limited supply and increasing demand, the childcare centres are going to raise their fees. 
and once they raise their fees, I'm not sure the savings are as, as great as anticipated. So will these childcare changes, do you think that will lead to increased financial success for women? Are there benefits here for for the bottom line, essentially? Yeah, on balance, yes. I, I think it, it just will not be as great as been made out because uh, the supply issues will lead to, to higher prices. One of the big issues, of course, was the superannuation on parental leave. What was your view on that? That seems to have been quite a big omission that the federal government has left that on the cutting room floor. Yes, and instead they, they have removed the provision where employers do not have to pay superannuation for those who earn less than $450 a month. And they said, now you have to. But that, that's a drop in the ocean. And, you know, it's the same with the, with the parental leave, pay, pay leave, because in, in that in that sense, how much is 9.5% of the minimum wage? It wouldn't have cost them all that much. It would have sent a very strong message. But again, I, I think the best way to, to target this way women are falling short on, on their superannuation balances is to, to target the pension. You know, make sure they are better provided for when, when they actually retire through government funding on a fortnightly basis. And what about for, for men, too, who want to have paid parental leave? I mean, it hasn't really addressed that. That's still a bit of a gap, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the government will point out that uh, on, on the paid parental leave, the mother can pass that on to the father, right? But we, we're talking more about the issue right now where men in general have two weeks, <laughs> Yeah, and, and we are far, far behind the OECD average, and uh, it's a no-brainer. I, th- I think the big issue is uh, getting businesses on board, because in most European countries, this is funded by the government. It's funded through the tax system. Whereas here, the idea is, if, if you're going to make men get four, six, eight weeks parental leave, the employer tends to have to stump up. So what about society stumping up? It takes a village to raise a child. True. And uh, perhaps if I can come to Elise, thank you for joining us as well today. Your perspective that there was quite a bit lacking, particularly for young people in this budget? Yeah. And I mean, I think that there were a few wins. So mental health, for instance, um, we had, I think, two point. $3 billion allocated to mental health and suicide prevention. Amongst that, uh, there was $278 million for Headspace over four years and a substantial amount of funding going to eating disorder um, prevention and support too. We did see some things around housing measures, harassment, of course, domestic violence, a little bit of support for endometriosis, which I know is a big concern for young women in particular, as well as some I don't know, some potential programs for women in non-traditional industries. But on the whole, you are absolutely right. I think what I was disappointed to see in this budget was that, yes, there is a focus on immediate recovery, and yes, some of these measures are quite necessary and, and, and good. But over the long term, we're losing out. You know, where was that focus on the environment, on climate change, on education, research, uh, travel, vaccinations for young people, and even the arts? You know, what does this mean for our longer term recovery, the building of an entrepreneurial, creative, um, innovative society, which actually does foster a, a better future for the younger generation? So much as there's been this, this huge investment uh, in childcare, it seems like the younger women do seem to be at the back of the queue. Absolutely. And it's that kind of old, I don't know, traditional budget of put on your hard hats and um, let's invest in infrastructure and construction. And, and even from that perspective, I know a few analyses were pointing out that by investing in education, we could boost job creation for women at 10 times the rate of what was invested in construction. I mean, these have really big ramifications for 
young women, if we're losing out on the opportunities to create a more agile workforce that does provide the right sustainable regenerative options too for society more generally, then I think that that's a really big loss. What about there seems to be quite a big investment in prevention or a reaction to domestic violence on a societal level. Is is that an encouraging aspect of the budget? Yeah, absolutely. I think as Sue said, you know, it's kind of the minimum we would have expected and it enormously benefits women to have safety, but that's the bare minimum that we would want to expect, um, particularly in a society like Australia. There was $10.7 million put aside for respectful relationships in schools. Again, great, but how far is $10.7 million actually going to go? Particularly when we know government as well as some uh, sectors of the society having some adverse reactions to the Safe Schools programs a few years ago, for instance, around LGBTIQ inclusion and, and so on. I mean, I think, you know, how are we going to reconcile these things? What is uh, respectful relationships program, consent programs, all of this? What does that actually look like in schools? And was that really enough to be investing in? I'd, I'd probably suggest not. So still not completely inclusive and it's in the detail, you'd say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And I think you've got to go to young people too and be real with them we saw with the kind of milkshake um, kind of uh, tackling consent recently that you know perhaps we're not talking with young people as they need to be talked with having the frank conversations and I think we're not meeting them at their level and in that vein we're not investing where it matters which is right at the start so we could build this out much better and I think that was a missed opportunity. I wonder if it does reflect that do you think that this really does show that the government is not listening to women to to people on the ground? Yeah and I mean if you have a look at at government too I mean where are the young women in our government. We have some really big issues this year, you know, amongst everything else has really, really demonstrated that. And so I think if we're not having that from a policymaking and from a government politician's perspective, then, you know, also how can we um, effectively engage with audiences and understand and push forwards the measures that need to be pushed. That milkshake campaign, I think, uh, will haunt them for some time, but it does seem a pretty good analogy for uh, some of the policy issues that uh, that have rolled forward since, as you, as you say. I mean, there, there needs to be a bit more prevention as well from, from quite young, you'd say? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I think if we're talking about childcare and kind of early early childhood education even, I mean, that would be one element perhaps that was missed you know all of this around uh, how we are supporting young people more generally from very young to teenage and up to 25 and so on um, you know we've got a way to go we've got a way to go and I think that still uh, looking at for instance unemployment or underemployment uh, young people aren't doing as well as um, you know perhaps other sects of the society so, oh, so it's even more marked in those parts yeah, of society absolutely absolutely so what are the pathways going forwards and it's not just older women who are stuck in part-time employment. Absolutely. Look at the hospitality, tourism, you know, all these sorts of industries which have uh, high rates of casual or part-time work, um, perhaps not as great uh, employment protections. I mean, yeah, young women certainly do dominate in these sectors as well. Wonderful. And uh, Fabrizio, uh, we're looking at the macroeconomic aspect with you. What were some of the aspects that you thought were positive in this budget and also some of those bigger aspects that, that missed out? 
Well, yes, I think that uh, on a macroeconomic level, this was a budget where there was a fundamental choice between two options. Option one was to continue to use fiscal policy and therefore the budget to support the recovery from the COVID recession. And option two was to undertake measures of uh, budget repair in order to uh, offset, if you want, the deficit and the debt that was accumulated last year. So between two op- these two options, the government has clearly chosen option one, which in my view is the, the right choice. Uh, certainly, the Australian economy is doing well in relative terms. We have seen the data on unemployment are, are looking good. Underemployment has also been declining. Um, the recession is technically over. So there are some good news there. Yet, the, the scare, the, the, the long-term implications of the COVID recession are going to be with us for some time, and therefore this was not the time for budget repair. This was definitely the time for uh, measures to support the, the broader uh, recovery of, of the economy, and, uh, and in this sense the budget has uh, taken that direction. Um, we also have to consider the fact that we have indicators like uh, weak wage growth that still, in, that still suggest that, that the Australian economy has a way to go before uh, achieving, if you want, the, the, the recovery status, before achieving full, full, full uh, potential status. So th- there is work to be done on the fiscal policy side in order to support the economy. And this is what this, gover- what this budget has, to some extent, tried to do. Now, as we have discussed, uh, the, the, the difficulties in the detail, uh, there are many provisions in this um, uh, budget, and I wouldn't say that all of these provisions uh, are actually uh, what I would have wanted or what I would have expected, given this uh, primary objective of, of supporting the economy. I certainly agree with what has been said around this uh, massive investment in infrastructure. I mean, this has been the case for, for a number of years now. We seem to believe that putting a lot of money into infrastructure will automatically generate economic growth, will automatically generate the, the, the development, the, the, the socioeconomic development of the future. And is that not the case? And that's not necessarily going to be the case. <laughs> Actually, it's unlikely to be the case in the context like Australia. We seem to be missing a bit more strategic vision of what our society and economy will have to look like, not next year, but 10 years into the future. We need a different type of investment, as it has been pointed out, more about social infrastructure, uh, more about uh, and entrepreneurship. One of the things that I would have liked to see in this budget, for instance, was more specific support for female entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and I don't think I've seen anything. There are provisions around businesses in general, but nothing specific around female entrepreneurship. Um, uh, there is some good news in terms of investment in the medical sector, which is absolutely a requirement. Uh, the rollout of the vaccination program has been so far not particularly satisfactory. There is some uh, measure to support that in the budget, so th- that's good news. Uh, there are also measures to support uh, low and, and middle income individuals uh, with the extension of measures uh, in relation to the tax offset that, that came from previous years. Uh, that's partly good news. Probably more could have been done in that sense. We need to remember that the COVID recession, as any uh, bad recession, hits individuals at the bottom end of income distribution more than anybody else. So uh, the outcome of a recession is often an increase in, in inequality, and therefore the measures to support the recovery has to be focused on those individuals at the bottom end of, of income distribution. So 
in short, uh, it, it, it's it's a budget that has taken of the two basic options. It has taken, in my opinion, the correct option. Then the detail is is satisfactory only up to a point. I wonder if some of the industries that has been pointed out as missing out also illustrate your point, Fabrizio, about particularly tourism, even universities. The fact that there is uh, not the funding flowing through to those sectors, does that particularly punish women as well? Well, To some extent, it certainly does. Uh, There are measures in this budget that by helping the recovery of the economy do help women because we know from the data, I mean, it's 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 demonstrated by the evidence that women suffered uh, proportionally more during the recession. So measures that broadly support the recovery also go in the direction of supporting women. But in, definitely, uh, some of the missing parts of this budget do hurt women. I mean, universities, and obviously here I have to declare a conflict of interest, but universities have been one of the main losers, if we can say that, not just from this budget, from but from the whole fiscal rescue package of, of last year. Uh, we shouldn't forget that higher education is a very important export sector for the Australian economy, and it's an export sector that has received very little support throughout this crisis and continues to receive very little support. It's good news to some extent. I believe that there is a provision to support uh, uh, female education in the STEM. Um, What about the non-STEM areas? That's not said. So overall, some of the missing gaps, as I said, in this budget do have an impact on the economy as a whole and obviously on female economic participation and inclusion. Elise, I wonder if I could even bring that back to you as well. Did that surprise you that tourism particularly had been so overlooked? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that we are still waiting to see where exactly our recovery goes and how long it will take for borders to open and realistically for us to be able to engage with the international community as much as before. I know that this is certainly something that is of concern to young people, but it the implications are so broad across society. So much of what we do in Australia is reliant on our global connections, on maintaining engagement with Asia and our region in particular. I'm yet to see some of that flow through. I mean, even, uh, you know, following the Pacific Step Up, which has increased investment, and I know there's increased investment for women's leadership programs in the Pacific. We've also um, seen a bit of a a ASEAN or Southeast Asian step down. So how are we engaging with young people across our region would also be something I'd be concerned about from a tourism perspective, from an education perspective, um, from an entrepreneurship and, you know, uh, ongoing exchange perspective, because when we have a look at it, actually our region has the highest proportion of youth in the world. So, you know, how are we actually uh, working together over a, a kind of just, fair, sustainable future going forward in the recovery. And could that also punish regions within Australia as well? Yeah, absolutely. And even here in Queensland, we're the only state to have a um, population which, you know, the majority of which lives in rural or regional areas. Um, You know, what sort of support are they going to see? Uh, We certainly know that although they haven't had the same health impacts due to COVID, um, economic impacts have flowed through and mental health disconnection, the the opportunities for young people outside of our urban centres, well, we're still not seeing perhaps the investment that we need to. It's been a massive impact, hasn't it? And uh, Pavinda, you're quite concerned that it's going to take a little while for a lot of these. uh, Of course, it is a budget and we're looking ahead essentially, but it's going to take a while for these policies to flow through. The target provision will start 1st July 2022, 
we need to increase female participation now. So perhaps the government could have kick-started it earlier. And I mean, it, there, there are reasons for that. Now, I, you know, Fabrizio has mentioned that for these multi-year plans, they do start the financial year after. But, uh, you know, I see no reason why, why they couldn't have done something a little bit more to, to make it an immediate start. Because if this is the issue now, why are we trying to solve it a little bit later? We need to start solving it now. What about JobKeeper implications too? The unemployment benefits, they, they did increase that by, by $50. Uh, but it's only a, a small a, a small bit. You know, as Fabrizio said, right, uh, the recession hits the poorer harder. So every dollar we put in the pocket of those who are less well-off, whether they are lower income earners or whether they are on unemployment benefits, the entire dollar is likely to come back into the economy. So we, 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 are, fo- we are focusing at the moment uh, here on increasing female participation, which is, of course, good. But a lot of women are also not employed. A lot of women are also on unemployment benefits, on all sorts of government assistance. So helping them more, hel- helping those at the lower end of the scale is also going to disproportionately help women. And uh, isn't that the aim of this women's budget? Fabrizio? Yes, just to follow up on Pavinder, mm-hmm. one issue that we had with JobKeeper is that, uh, you know, as an idea, it, it makes sense to, to provide some form of uh, employment support, and, and employment support has been used in other countries quite successfully. However, when you go down to the design of JobKeeper, it was such that, in, in many cases, it ended up uh, as a form of corporate welfare, uh, and, and we have seen, we see it on the news on, on a regular basis now, of situations where uh, some some businesses, some large businesses in particular, have increased their profits primarily or, or partly thanks to uh, to JobKeeper. So there were issues with the design of JobKeeper. While, if you want, the concept was probably uh, correct. The design and the actual implementation was not. This is something that hopefully will be corrected moving forward because, as I said, while unemployment has declined, it is still above what we would generally expect or what the Treasury and the RPA would generally expect as, if you want, a, a, a long-term equilibrium level of unemployment. So there is still a bit to do in relation to unemployment. And that's probably not emerging too clearly in, in not just in the budget, but more generally in the economic strategy of the government. So, uh, looking overall at this budget, there's certainly, uh, once we get to the detail, it's uh, perhaps missing out on some areas. Could you describe this as a gender-inclusive budget? No, not really. <laughs> and that's for, that's for a couple of reasons. $3.4 billion out of $95 billion is pocket money, not half so if we're thinking about we want a budget that achieves uh, a pandemic recovery package this is the the budget of a of, of a cycle of a generation you know where they're going to spend big to kickstart the economy what you want in that kind of budget is a vision for the kind of community you want in the future the sort of economy you want in the future it's a rare, it's a rare opportunity the governments have at the moment to invest heavily to kickstart the economy you've seen what the Biden administration has done in the US using that moment to redesign some really difficult areas of public policy so what women expect to see is a budget that takes them seriously as an economic actor and that takes them seriously as a member of Australian society. So the idea that you would describe women as winners of a budget that puts the minimum amount into domestic violence, I mean, are you a winner if you've got 
just enough money to escape a domestic so, so the, the thinking is wrong I think what, the, what some of the transparency around the budget measures have done in this last year has made me, women realise how marginalised they are in particularly financial areas and budget matters they just still don't understand what women are expecting as equal partners in a society so to, to describe you as a winner because you get a bare minimum of money spent on protecting you from violence is not not okay and the idea that your that the investment in health is makes you a winner when it's six dollars ninety per woman per year, it, there's absolutely not parity in health spending across the genders, and we know this, right? So what it does is tip it up a little bit. So it's it's good. So I'm not saying it's not good. It is. It tips you up, but doesn't make you a winner. Uh, I think our budget analysis is always about who's a winner and who's a loser out of budget issues. Women are still losers out of this budget. This is not a gender parity budget. This is not a budget that takes women seriously as an economic actor. But what it does do is repair some of those big disparities in public funding around women's safety and female labour participation and health. But it's it's still not good. It does nothing to address that the poorest women in Australia or the poorest people in Australia are single women over 60. Nothing structurally changes that statistic in this budget. And as Elise has pointed out, younger women have very little to look forward to, I think, if they look at this budget. And what we also don't have is decent gender analysis of the budget as a whole. So where's that infrastructure spend going to benefit men, women, boys and girls in different demographics, in different types of areas of Australia? Still, they never give enough analysis that helps people understand how these issues will affect them. And this is an election budget because we have to have an election now by May next year. We need to see it in that perspective, but in that perspective, it still doesn't say to me they take women's vote very seriously either. Why wouldn't you address directly what has been caused by the pandemic? I guess this is the issue. You know, if it's a pandemic recovery budget, why is there not a better match between what harm the pandemic has done to particular sectors, to particular types of harms, and the spending that you would see in a post-pandemic budget? That's the problem. You, you don't see a match uh, between those two things. Particularly for young people, Elise, I mean, they they do have so much concern. That, I mean, it, there was all, before the pandemic, it was much about climate change and Greta Thunberg and all that focus. But now it just seems like these there's so much for young people to process about their future, isn't there? That's true. And I think it's a, we're at this point where there's a lot of existential kind of crises, really. You know, will we have a planet? Will we have an Australia? You know, what will happen to, you know, will I have a, a home in the future? Will I be afford to buy a home? Can I get a first job? And once I've got that first job, will my contract, you know, will, we, will you get additional jobs beyond that. I mean, that's all really real considerations for young people. And so I think it feeds into the mental health bigger picture, right? What are the opportunities? What are the pathways going forwards? And this is really where that investment in industries, which are, you know, are emerging or are growing is needed. Obviously, we have seen uh, investment in job training around digital skills, digital skills chips, including 460 new scholarships around this. That'll be great. But it's one part of the solution. You know, we, we really need a more comprehensive outlook into what are going to be the options that help bring people to that next stage of their life. I mean, the federal government, I think, has shown that they were a bit stung by the hard hat kind of criticism that they got for the last budget that came out six months ago. But really, is this budget really more about damage control with women's voters than real structural change, as you say, to, to address gender inequality in this country? 
I mean, it might work because all the major newspapers today are running with a women are the winners out of this budget. And it's like, really? <laughs> That's a low bar for winning. Uh, but, you know, at least it pays attention to women and that is good, right? So a budget that has some part that pays attention to women is good. But as I said, it fails as a as a. What you want is every budget to have some pay attention to gender equality. That's that's what you want, as opposed to a women's budget where women win. You want a gender equal budget where the implications of economic policy for men and women, boys and girls, are fully understood. That's what we're aiming for. Well, if we can perhaps sum up with all of us having an opportunity just to give a bit of a concluding aspect as to your analysis of the budget, and particularly um, perhaps if we can plug our sector a bit as well and as to what research should be is needed uh, in this space, How, because uh, particularly, as you mentioned, universities didn't really fare well. So um, what, what aspects would you like to see followed up there well I might start what I loved this time was that we have a a women in economics event at the press club and they had a pre-budget session so it's the first time you've seen female economists on the stage saying what they expect from the budget so that's a really great precedent I was really impressed to see that so few female economists and very even out of them less feminist economists so that was really cool I recommend that as a resource to anyone the women in economics network press club event what do you think, Elise? Yeah, for me, um, going forwards, I think I'm, I'm very keen to see about this intersection of basically environment and climate change and what we're doing around uh, entrepreneurship and I guess the creative solutions to the challenges that we have in society. If we're able to plug a little bit more research, a bit more funding into these areas and specifically how they might impact on young women or how young women could be part of leading the charge, then that would certainly be something that I'd love to see. Fabrizio? I'd like moving forward to have budget that are informed by a, a clearer vision about the Australia of the future, where the sources of growth and, and, and socioeconomic development are going to come from. Uh, so a budget that is not primarily driven by this almost blind trust in, in infrastructure, in physical infrastructure, as the main mechanism to support the, the, the prosperity of the Australian society in the future. We need to look at the difficult side of the future. We need to think about, as uh, we were saying, uh, creative ways to encourage the emergence of new sectors, the emergence of new opportunities for work, for entrepreneurship, for learning. There is a bit of work to do to inform the budget of the future. Favinda? Yes, uh, the, the rhetoric where we are moving away from focus on budget repair and interest rates more towards job creation is is one that you know takes us back to the post World War Two era, the Bretton Woods era, where it was all about trying to create prosperity for society and uplift everyone in society. And and I would hope that this is not a one off and that this this then becomes the mantra for the next X number of years. And you know, given this podcast is, is more geared towards women, I think that's going to benefit women quite a lot because most women are, you know, relatively speaking, in terms of, of income, in terms of wealth, in terms of their financial situation, uh, not on par with men. So I think more on, on job creation and uh, a little bit less on uh, interest rates and uh, budget repair. It was an interesting shift, wasn't it, that the government really is focused on generating jobs, not on maintaining a surplus. How significant is that? It was always such an arbitrary and somewhat ideological test you know, you have the budget for the political situation you find yourself in 
at the time and it took a global pandemic to shift that rhetoric. And I'm glad. I mean, debt, you know, clearly we do want to, um, you know, uh, keep government debt at manageable levels. But the folk, the budget is just a tool to create the political economy we want. The budget is a tool. It's not an outcome. But debt is not a... Uh, it's not an end. Reducing debt is not an end of itself. The whole thing is about a healthy economy that builds the future Australia wants. Exactly. So I think we need to rethink the way we, we think about budgets. I also, what I hope this budget has encouraged is a lot more Australians really taking it seriously and getting engaged in what a budget is, what it does, because the budget is the, or the budget is the lever that government has to show values. So, in amongst government spending, the budget each year is, is one of the clearest ways that a government can demonstrate priorities and values. And that's really the purpose of a budget statement is to show shifts in priorities and values. So I think if more Australians understand what a budget is for and don't get alienated by the language and, and actually read the papers themselves, get interested in the budget papers, find out what is in it from them, that is a good thing. A bit more transparency and engagement with the budget process is good for the body politic. Do you think there is that engagement there or is it uh, a case, Elise, perhaps that if you're not in the budget, there's not really benefits there for you, it's pretty hard for you to engage with that process? Yeah, completely. I mean, we do have our national broadcaster and Triple J does a, you know, a, a great effort of uh, outreach to young young people essentially around the budget and implications. But beyond that, I mean, what really are we seeing? You know, how much is this discussed, uh, you know, in, in classrooms or in, you know, other community centres where young people are and in families? Um, you know, where is the outreach to, to young people? And I think this also goes to perhaps some um, catching up we have to do around civic education and around uh, creatively engaging young people in Australian democracy and well, what future do they want? Um, how can they be part of that uh, and, and bring their, their views into Parliament and into politics too. You know, how much are our politicians actually listening to, looking to what Australia looks like for, for young people going ahead? Particularly the lack of focus or discussion really about environmental aspects too, which is so important oh, to that generation. so disappointing, mm. and particularly mm. after Biden, and who's come out really strongly for both kind of gender and diversity and inclusion and, and racial inclusion and all these sorts of things, as well as climate change and made that such a, such a big priority focus of, of their government. I mean, I would have expected us to maybe follow a little bit more closely there, given that we do follow closely in many other ways. But, you know, I think that we are, we are facing some ideological challenges still in Australia across the board and, and moving forwards to a place of climate action still is very much so we're falling behind. We we need to catch up. We need to, as, as Fabrizio was saying, we need to think about well, what Australia do we want in the future because we actually need to create it right now and we need input and buy-in from across society to do so. There was another big ticket item in the, the budget, of course. Lots of money going towards the defence spend. Defence spending is one of the few areas of budget spending that's set to targets as a percentage of, of GDP. So you will see large rises in defence spending every year. And I suppose for me, people saying, oh, it's a women's budget. I'm like, yeah, not when there's record defence spending on keeping our troops battle ready. That's not, it's not what most feminist economists are looking for uh, in a budget. So this is an area of spending that 
really needs some close attention in terms of proportionality to social policy spend or other types of social infrastructure. But it was a very big ticket item this year and it receives no gender analysis at all and it's another male-dominated industry that benefits. It's true. It's very much been overlooked. I haven't seen much discussion about that at all and really it's had received more than than the so-called women's budget. Much, much more. That was Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, along with other members of Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network, Dr Pavinda Clare, Dr Elise Stevenson and Professor Fabrizio Carmignani. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton, with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.